This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Peter Jaworski, who is a teaching professor at the McDonald School of Business at Georgetown University. Uh, Peter Jaworski got his PhD at Bowling Green State University. Peter, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, Bowling Green State University, that's in the great state of Ohio. Yes. Yes. So, uh, my first question is a question I always ask my guests, a little bit of background. You're a professional philosopher, how did that happen? And how did you end up (laughs) at a business school of all places? Uh, you know, it's funny because uh, you get to certain points and you don't always pause and reflect and think about how you ended up where you ended up. So let me let me begin by saying that probably the truth is it's all an accident. Like I just sort of bumbled my way to both pursuing philosophy and business. Okay, so that's going to be the over overarching, so keep that in mind. But more specifically, I recall, you know, when I... I did my undergrad at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, and initially I was a political science major. Um, But um, the only classes that I did extra reading for were philosophy classes. So, you know, I took political science 101 or whatever it was, and I would do what was required of me, but nothing more than that. But for my philosophy classes, you know, we talked about Nietzsche, and then I was like, oh, wow, I have to read more Nietzsche. And so I picked up Beyond Good and Evil and and a few other of his books, and everything that we were doing in philosophy really kind of excited me. And then slowly over time, I just took more and more philosophy classes until I realized, oh, okay, I, I'm actually a philosophy major, not not a political science major. So that's what explains, but, but I did have uh, a moment, so if you look at, you know, I did my undergrad at Queens in philosophy. Then I went and I did a one-year master's degree at the University of Waterloo in philosophy. Then I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, and I actually thought about whether or not I was going to become a journalist, which was an option, or do public policy. And only by chance was there a master's program in philosophy and public policy at the London School of Economics that I was accepted in. And so I went and I did that, and that's when I decided that I really wanted to be an academic. How did I end up here? <laughs> I mean, as you know, you just apply for all the jobs that are available. My first year out, I think I applied for something like 81 or something like that positions. Um, this one turned out well. I got a one-year position here. I really loved it here. I still love working here. Um, they were satisfied with my teaching. They asked me to stay, and the rest is history. Well, on a follow-up question, um, so you do a lot of ethics stuff, um, and I think in a lot of people's minds, ethics is antithetical to like profit and, and greed and a lot of the <laughs> stuff that like drives businesses, right? I think in like you know just ordinary minds, if I was like, yeah, I, I'm you know, like an ethicist working at a business school, they'd be like, what? Like, can you explain? Like, isn't that antithetical? Like, aren't those in conflict? Yeah, some people say business ethics is an oxymoron. That's right. the, that's the old joke. But look, the the one thing you have to recognize, and it and sort of like people recognize this when you just point it out. Um, working within a for-profit model can be a way of living up to your civic responsibilities. Can be a way of promoting good things for the right reasons. 
We don't think of nurses, for example, as people who are selfish, but what they do, they do in part for money, clearly with other motives too, but they are paid for what they do. Nurses aren't all of them volunteers, right? Similarly, think about the very many different things that we can do in a for-profit envelope, right? There are so many different professions that you can pursue. The relevant question is which of those are you selecting from that range? Because you can pursue something that maximizes your income, your own selfish desires, or you can focus on a sufficient amount of money that you need to make in order to pay for your home, pay the bills, make sure your kids have what they need, et cetera, um, and then select for the things that give your life more meaning or are more significant to you or help the world. So we tell our students all the time, like first figure out what you're passionate about, figure out what is meaningful, purposeful, what is the kind of work that you wanna do, and then figure out how to monetize it, right? Like step one, find your passion, find your purpose, find something that you want to do every day even when you're really tired. Step two, you need money, figure out how to monetize it. And I understand that when people say figure out how to monetize something, some people, you know, that, that rubs some people the wrong way, but I don't, think, I don't think it should. Provided that the pursuit of the passion, provided that the pursuit of the purpose is sincere and authentic, then it's a good thing if you can figure out uh, how to do that for a living, how to make that your career. The, um, the late, great Anthony Flew was a philosopher, a British philosopher, once commented that people always talk about the profit motive, but people rarely talk about the wage motive. Right? Sort of, oh, that's really nice. Right. Sort of that, that, uh, Can I add to that, by the way? Sure. Uh, people often talk about profit, but they never talk about consumer surplus, or they rarely talk about consumer surplus. What and, is consumer surplus? Yeah, consumer surplus is the difference between what you are willing to pay for something and how much you actually have to pay for it. So questions like, uh, how much would it take for you to give up the internet for a year, <laughs> right? That's basically your surplus. Yeah. And then subtract how much you pay for the internet. Right. So suppose you said a million dollars, and suppose it costs you $500 yeah. for the internet per year. Is that a reasonable amount? Yeah, that's, that's reasonable. Um, subtract a million from 500, that's your surplus. That's yeah. your profit on the consumer side. Well, here, I mean, here's a great example you know, to illustrate. Um, some people pay a membership fee to shop at Costco. It's apparently worth them to pay money just to get in the door, to get access to that market, right? So, you know. Um, but but on this sort of on this note, you've worked with Jay, uh, Jason Brennan on like the moral limits of markets. Yeah. I know some people just don't like certain things being for sale, right? <laughs> like it's just kind of right. It's just something. There's something in your gut that just sort of recoils. Um, can you talk about like what what that is and why sort of why people it? recoil? What? Well, yeah, why, why, maybe why they're wrong. Yeah, so let me try to explain. Sometimes it's just like a bear disgust reaction, but it's hard to believe that it's just a, a bear disgust reaction. Instead, it's probably something like, look, um, we think that when it comes to certain kinds of things, you need to do them with the right kinds of motives. And we assume, if I told here's something you're totally unfamiliar with, paying somebody to carry a baby to term for you, so surrogacy. Suppose you've never heard of that before. You think, oh, you're gonna pay someone to do that, and then you immediately think, well, why would anybody do that? It must be for the money. 
in which case you start thinking, well, those are the motives, and then you think, well, wait, those are the wrong motives in that situation. And so for that reason, you might feel disgust, or you might feel as though that's the wrong sort of approach. And so for that reason, you might think that commercial surrogacy is a really bad idea. That case reduces down to motives. The other, the other sorts of cases is you might associate the first thing that you think of when it comes to a market, Wall Street. Okay, and then you go, well, what sorts of people work in Wall Street? Well, they don't care about what the equities represent. They're just commodities. Gordon Gecko. You think of Gordon Gecko. Okay, right. tell me about Gordon Gecko. Gordon Gecko is an asshole, meaning he's selfish. Right. He doesn't care about the things that he's exchanging or trading. He doesn't regard with reverence. He doesn't think of pork bellies as like reverent things or like pork belly futures as something important or whatever. He's in it for himself. He's just trying to maximize profit. He uses cost-benefit analysis. He behaves very much like Homo economicus from the economics textbook. So if that's the first thing that you think about markets, and then I say to you, oh, uh, surrogacy, blood, plasma, kidneys, etc., uh, maybe we should pay people for that, then you think, well, would it be okay if Gordon Gecko were to participate in surrogacy? The answer is absolutely not. Right, because you can't think of the baby as a mere commodity. You can't think of women's labor as a mere commodity. You can't reason in accordance with some kind of crude cost-benefit analysis. You can't just, right. So for all of those reasons, you might be inclined to say, we shouldn't have commercial surrogacy. But as soon as you realize that nurses are paid for what they do and we think that they're altruistic, then you realize that it's possible for there to be commercial surrogates and also commercial surrogacy agencies that treat the women who are surrogates in the right way, that treat the babies that are the product of commercial surrogacy in the right way, that treat the people who show up and, and want this because they themselves can't conceive a baby or um, um, yeah, or for whatever reason, if they treat them the right way, then there's really no problem with it. At least that's what Jason Brennan and I argue in Markets Without Limits. It's, it's funny you use surrogacy as an example, I think, because so many people are used to that, thinking about surrogacy. It's sort of a, a more of a modern thing we accept, at least, you know, probably the last 20, 30 years. Um, but you also mentioned blood, mm -hmm. right? Blood plasma. Yeah. Uh, not so much, right? So... Uh, we tend to think of blood as the sort of thing you should donate. It's um, out of the goodness of your heart. It's purely altruistic. I know you work on the subject a lot. so I do. I do. Yes. So uh, I guess blood and specifically blood plasma, those are two distinct things. Blood plasma is a component of blood. It's the, the largest part of blood, but you have like red uh, blood cells, white blood cells. You have platelets um, and you have plasma. Plasma is most of your blood, but it's distinct. Within plasma are a bunch of proteins, and we can take those proteins and we can turn them into medicines like immunoglobulin, albumin, clotting factors, and a range of other things that treat rare diseases. People do think that we should give blood and blood plasma. There are two different procedures. I don't want to get in the weeds with this, right? But there are two different procedures. It takes longer to give uh, blood plasma than it does to give uh, blood. You can do um, blood plasma donations much more often. Um, so people do think that you should give those things out of the kindness of their heart, uh, of your heart. 
rather than out of a regard for the thickness of your wallet or something like that, right? Or thinness. Or the thing, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. One thing to say in response, since I do think that it is perfectly appropriate to pay people for blood plasma, this is uh, common in the United States. It exists, but is less common in Canada. In the biggest provinces in Canada, it's illegal. Uh, so Ontario, British Columbia, and Quebec ban payment for blood plasma donations. Is there any particular reason why that's the case? Yeah, I mean, the argument you just gave is one reason why. They say it should be done altruistically. Um, it shouldn't be done for money. So they ban paying people for it, in part for altruistic reasons. Other Other worries are... And maybe more prominent ones include, look, if you if you allow payment for blood plasma, then poor people are going to sell it. And um, maybe it's wrongfully exploitative. Maybe it takes advantage of poor people to sort of treat them like, um, l like a farm, right? Like we're farming blood plasma for from the poor as uh, one group that's against payment for blood plasma has described. Can I pause you there? Yeah. Can you make the same argument about apple fritters? I mean, apple fritters, warm apple fritters are delightful, and I, I think people should just out of the kindness of their heart make apple fritters. <laughs> it makes the world a better place. <laughs> and if you say, well, if we pay people for apple fritters, more likely poor people are going to make them. We're going to exploit their labor, right? I mean, why, why can't I run that same argument for apple fritters? Um, I am puzzled, too. Actually, that's a really good... I really enjoyed that argument. Thank you for that. Uh, I don't think it sounds really ridiculous, but actually it's not bad because we do need a reason that explains why we should treat blood differently from apple fritters, um, especially since both can produce certain kinds of good outcomes. Now, I think people are going to be able to distinguish those two. I don't know if they can get around your argument, but but my thinking on this is that, look, the point of collecting plasma isn't to make sure that you and I and other people have an opportunity to behave altruistically. That's, that's not the point. The point of collecting plasma is to make sure that patients don't die, that patients have the therapies that they need. And so then the question becomes, well, what is the more effective way of getting enough blood plasma to meet the needs of patients, uh, footnote, without uh, running afoul of a number of ethical objections. Like, you can't do it any way you want to do it, right? We can't round people up and take their blood plasma without their consent, right? Well, we could, we just shouldn't. We could, but we shouldn't. That's, that, that's right, right. We yeah. definitely should not. Right. So then the question is just, well, what's the most effective way to do it? And look, the United States supplies more than 70% of the entire world's blood plasma for the, uh, for the th plasma therapies. More than 70%. And we pay for that. Yeah, and in the United States, you have a commercial model that pays people for plasma donation. It supplies more than 80% of Canada's plasma therapies. Like We don't collect enough in Canada. We collect only enough to meet 13% of our patients' needs, so the rest we import from the United States. Canada is not unusual, by the way. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but Australia relies on the US for more than 50% of their plasma therapies. Europe as a whole relies on the United States for about 34% uh, 
of their plasma. And by the way, Europe, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and the Czech Republic also pay for plasma and have a commercial model. And they supply, uh, just those four countries, 33% uh, of all of Europe's needs. So all of the other countries in Europe um, that don't pay for plasma, none of them are self-sufficient. All of them import from the countries that pay for plasma. So I think we can conclude that the commercial model of plasma collection using a pay for plasma model is the only one that so far has proven to be effective. Every other country in the world has a deficit and they all rely on the countries. The only countries that have a surplus are the countries that allow payment. So it works. That's how patients get their medicine. That's more important than giving me an opportunity to behave altruistically. If I want to behave altruistically, I can go buy an apple fritter and like give it to somebody to, to lighten their day, or I can give somebody a hug. There's so many opportunities for altruism, we don't need this one. Well, so I'm puzzled by why countries that think paying people for blood plasma is exploitative or potentially exploitative would import blood, right? From systems that presumably exploit people, so it's okay to exploit. So if I'm like Canadian or you know Australian or whatever, it's okay to exploit America's poor, just as long as you don't do it domestically. That seems sort of weird, arbitrary. Capricious. So, uh, so I've pointed this out in publications. You, you've got this exactly, exactly right. At, at a, um, at a minimum, Canada is complicit in the wrongful exploitation of America's poor if paying for plasma is wrongfully exploitative. I don't think it is, by the way. I don't think it's exploitative at all. I think it's fair, like the amount of money that people receive for giving plasma is fair, maybe even more than fair, um, especially right now. We do have a, a deficit in plasma collection all over the world because of COVID. And so the commercial companies have increased the amount that they pay. And in some cases, it takes you about an hour and a half to donate plasma. Um, the plasma regenerates within 24 hours, which is why you can do it twice a week with 48 hours in between. Um, and you get paid anywhere between 50 to $100 per donation. That works out to about, you know, let's say $30 per hour up to, say, $60 or $70 per hour of your time. How is that unfair? How is that exploitative on the theory that, like, you know, exploitation, if the theory is a fair division of the benefits from trade, then it'll depend on, you know, both how much you get in the form of payment for plasma, as well as how much the company gets uh, in the form of profit from selling the plasma. But if the international price of plasma, and the last time I checked, it was about 220 or $240, if that's the price, then payment, which as as I said, it works out to about $50 on average per unit. So that's like per liter. So you get $50 as a donor. The company gets $200 in revenue. That's like the top line. But the bottom line, they get less than $50 in profit per unit, per liter of plasma. I, I hope I don't want to do math here. And I don't want your podcast to turn into math. But this is important. The company gets less than the donor does. Donor compensation is the highest expense for these companies. 
I don't see how that's unfair. And furthermore, even if you don't think that that's a good enough argument to overcome the exploitation objection, I just don't understand how you make the lives of people who are poor, let us say, any better by removing this option. So before you come along, you, the person who's about to ban payment for plasma donation, I, if, you know, if I can say to myself, look, if I fall on hard times, I can always sell my plasma. But you come along and you go, oh, I'm going to help you. How are you going to help me? I'm going to make it illegal for you to sell your plasma. How have you helped me? I'm not, I didn't get $50 in my pocket. You've removed an option, an option that per our assumptions, I considered the best of whatever the worst, the bad options are for trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Right, so I just don't, I don't understand the exploitation argument. That I guess that's the conclusion. Why should we think that no, I should say I understand it. I just reject it. I understand the argument. I reject it. Why should we think um, paying for blood plasma is any more exploitative, and I'll use the less silly example this time, than being a roofer? I mean, from what I've heard, being a roofer is just awful. Especially in the Are you summer. from the Midwest, by the way? No. Because well, uh, you say roofer. Roofer, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. we would say roofer. Roofer. Well, either and way, by we, I think I mean Canadians. I'm Canadian, by the way. Yeah. Anyways, go on. But but either way, right? Um, it seems strange that like, if you're a, like a, a redhead in the summer doing roofing, like that's pretty awful. And I'm exploiting your labor, exploiting in a sense, right? I'm paying you, and, and maybe that's your best option. Maybe you don't have a lot of education or other options, and, and that's what you have to do to make a living. I I'm I'm reticent to call that exploitation. I mean, it, it would suck. Doesn't sound very pleasant. But then I'm, I'm curious, like, what the difference is. And I wonder if the intuitions here are one's more bodily invasive. Yeah. If that's what's bringing, it's enlisting yeah. these moral intuitions. Have you done work on this? Is this a thing? I think uh, I have done some work on it. And I think, first of all, the roofer example is another really good example, uh, just as the apple fritters case was, I think, a really good example, too. We can expand that. Some people clean toilets. Some people, look, there are a variety of jobs that people do that people wouldn't do if they had a million dollars. So Michael Sandel, the political theorist at Harvard who wrote a book called What Money Can't Buy, you know, he suggests a test of coercion. And the test, um, I don't know if I remember exactly all of the details, but the test is something like, you know, would you do this if you didn't have to? And if you wouldn't do it, if you didn't have to, then we can say that it's your financial situation that coerces or forces or makes you do the thing that you don't want to do. But who would be a roofer if they, actually some people might, you know, I'm busy fixing the roof, building a screened in porch or whatever, and I'm kind of enjoying it. So, so I'm not saying anything about that. I, I'm saying there are plenty of jobs that people wouldn't do that we don't think should be illegal because people wouldn't do it unless they were um, fallen uh, unless they have fallen on hard times, or or they they would do them but not at the scale we right. need them to because people need rooms right for that's right for houses. Uh, so that that's that's a strange test because it seems to prove what, what philosophers say prove too much. It seems to overgeneralize viciously. Right? Yeah, it would that's seem to show that too. a lot of things are coercive that we don't like. I don't think the guy that hands me my McDonald's bag is being coerced. He probably doesn't like his job, and you know, it's, you know, he's a young guy, and 
It's not his favorite job. He's not going to be there forever. I, it's not very pleasant. I've worked those kind of jobs. I know what it's like. But I don't think he's being coerced. I think that's strong. That's a bit strong. Someone came along and they're like, Michael Sandel walked up, like, you know, got in between me and like the McDonald's thing, just grabbed my bag away. He's like, stop coercing this McDonald's employee. Like, how dare you? I'd be like, you know, Michael, first of all, that's not coercion. That's a little strong. And secondly, like, this is good experience for him. I work jobs like this. Probably you did too. Yeah. Right? A lot of people do, right? I mean, it's nice to have options. I get that. But coercion seems strong. Coercion seems strong. Yeah. So I do think what you said uh, earlier about the distinction between roofers and um, blood plasma sellers or donors, I, I do think it's true that it, there's something about it being a part of my body that makes people uncomfortable about it. It, it is invasive. It's from the inside of my body. So some people have different intuitions about selling hair. So we can sell hair and I can respond and I can say, that's a part of your body, just like plasma is. And somebody might say, yeah, but you know, plasma is on the inside and hair is on the outside. I still can't see why that's relevant. So I think that even, even the sort of bodily, look, the roofer uses her body to do the roofing. Mm -hmm. She's on top of the roof doing whatever she's doing with what? Her body, her arms and her legs and so on. She uses those things. Um, she's expending calories. So that's, that's something that happens inside of the, ooh, inside of the body. Um, She's sweating, so something from the inside is, you know, and that's part of her job. She's doing those things as part of her job. You might think that like roofing is less intimate than selling plasma, but so is being a masseuse. Being a masseuse is more intimate than roofing, and being a masseuse seems to me to be more intimate than, you know, giving plasma. At any rate, I, I think that's what accounts for the intuitions, but as soon as you make those intuitions explicit and you start comparing certain things, it seems a little bit arbitrary to say that we can't sell blood plasma, but we can sell masseuse services and we can sell hair, right? And surrogacy. And surrogacy, yes, yeah, some people say that like uh, some of these things are more like you're selling who you are as a person. And so blood, but the claim that blood plasma is me, I, I think we can speak plainly, that's stupid, right? That's stupid, and it regenerates. So look, if, if it were true that blood plasma were me and it should be regarded in this super sacred way, we would behave very differently when we got a cut and we bled. Here's what we do. We take a piece of tissue, we wipe the blood, we throw it in the garbage. We cover it up with Band-Aid. We don't take it carefully, preserve it somewhere, and like create like some kind of shrine to the blood that we've lost, which we would if that's who we were, right? So, so if we don't care when we get a cut, if we just throw that away, then why would we care if it's taken and turned into medicine that then goes on to save people's lives? In a way, that's even more beautiful, and, and people get paid for it. So what? Nurses get paid. As I've said so many times, nurses get paid to save lives. Oh, you shouldn't get paid to save lives. Oh, really? We shouldn't pay nurses? We shouldn't pay doctors? Or farmers. Or farmers. <laughs> yeah, right. And I mean, et cetera. I, I just keep wanting to come back to Adam Smith's. You know, we don't rely on the, the goodwill of the baker. Right? We rely on his motive to make money. 
we uh, we do. We can be more assured of it that way. And I think that's why payment for plasma works. But I also think that it's an empirical question whether the people, look, some people choose to become nurses because that, given their circumstances and their broader context, is how they can make the most money. But once they start becoming nurses, some people, and they start you know, working at a hospital, they might realize that what they're doing is meaningful, is significant, it saves lives, and then they might also be motivated by pro-social motives and not just a desire for the money. We sometimes realize these things after the fact. Similarly with people who might begin selling their, by the way, I encourage everyone, including your listeners, to donate plasma or to sell it. I don't care which one you choose um, because what matters is that we have enough uh, plasma to make the therapies that save lives. But people who give plasma might be unaware of what it's used for at the beginning, but then they might become aware of how it's used. They might meet a patient. They might realize that they themselves have been patients. This happens, by the way. I had, a, I had an interview for a TV show in Canada, and the host, we were discussing plasma. That's what it was going to be about. And the host, Christine is her name, discovered during our conversation that she used RH immunoglobulin, which is, uh, um, uh, or anti-D. Uh, this is a kind of therapy that you give uh, mothers who are pregnant whose, uh, uh, whose uh, uh, blood type doesn't match the baby's blood type. And so the mother sometimes creates antibodies against the baby's blood and so threatens the life of the baby. But if you take RH immunoglobulin, that changes the, like if it's, you know, AB positive, it switches it, or AB negative, it switches it to AB positive or whatever. So when you have that kind of mismatch and uh, uh, you can take RH immunoglobulin, she learned that she was on it before and she didn't know that she had benefited from a plasma therapy, so. I'm wondering though if someone might say, um, Paying people to donate plasma is, is sort of a, it's got a Kantian, uh, I don't know, Kantian distaste to it. Like you're, you're treating people as a mere means to an end. I can imagine somebody saying that. All right. It's like, are you treating like a car, right? Like you, you treat the car as a, as a thing. It gets you from point A to point B. You don't really care about the car for its own sake. I don't really care about the person doing the donating for their own sake. So yeah, what okay. What do you say to that? Yeah, so um, maybe a couple of things, but let's begin with Kant himself. So Kant's view is that you can't ever treat people merely as a means. You have to do it simultaneously. We have to treat them simultaneously as an end in themselves. They matter for their own sake. They matter for their own sake, meaning that as long as we respect them. So I go to McDonald's and I just want a Big Mac. So then the person behind the counter you might think I'm treating that person as a mere means to getting a Big Mac. Like you there, go get me a Big Mac. It's okay on Kant's view, provided that I respect the person simultaneously. So it's, it's whether or not I treat that person merely as a means or if I respect them at the same time. Um, and so similarly, when you sell your blood plasma, it's perfectly possible for somebody to respect the person who does it and also want their plasma. I'm wondering too, why, do you think the resistance to um, paying for blood plasma is 
is purely moral, or is there something going on there? Like, are there some financial or economic incentives to resist? Wow, you're asking all the right questions. Um, <laughs> so uh, trying to be as charitable as possible, I have addressed or tried to address in the literature and in other contexts uh, the specific arguments that are made by people. However, like to, why is it that in Canada it's the public sector unions that are opposed to payment for blood plasma? It isn't the patient organizations. The patient organizations, basically all of them, uh, want uh, a commercial model of pay for plasma in Canada. So they are actively lobbying to try to get that model to work. And the reason why is because their lives depend on it and they know that that's the most effective way of getting enough plasma. So why is it that the public sector unions are opposed to it? In the United States, it's not patients that are opposed to it. It's not, you know, legislators. It's the American Red Cross that is opposed to it. The American Red Cross, I think, sees the commercial plasma operators as competition. I think the American Red Cross worries that if this expands more and more, then, you know, th that's, a, that's a business unit, that's a thing that they make money from, that they'll be less able to make money from. In Canada, <clears throat> Canadian Blood Services is the provincially funded, so it's a government-run um, blood and plasma collector. They don't pay for plasma. And because they are provincially funded, they are required to hire employees who are represented by the public sector unions. So the reasoning of the public sector unions, and I actually have documents that say this explicitly, is that um, uh, in the, the, that the commercial plasma sector threatens the jobs of the employees represented by the union. The commercial sector doesn't have to hire anyone represented by any public sector union. So they reason that if it's banned, and of course we need to collect way more plasma, Canada is in such a huge deficit, it's a real nightmare. Um, since we are in such a deficit, and the commercial option is foreclosed if we ban it, if we make it illegal, then legislators will have no choice but to spend more money to open more Canadian blood services, uh, plasma collection centers. And if they do that, then they have to hire employees represented by the public sector union. That's more dues, that's more clout, that's more power. But like I said, look, that, that's, that's an explanation. But uh, as I said, I try to address the arguments that they make rather than the motives that might, rather than the incentives that are in place for them to behave in this way. Well, the, I mean, the reason I'm asking is for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, you want to, if you're trying to solve a problem, you want to know, you know, why it's a problem to begin with, right? And the other is that I often find, not always, but I often find that people make moral arguments to disguise other things, right? You want to look yeah. better than you are. I mean, I can't just come out and be like, I want more jobs for unions so people can die without blood plasma. I don't want to do, not that's what's going on, but... If, if that were what was going on, you wouldn't say that, would you? It wouldn't work. So you're going to disguise it with moral language, right? Yeah. Not always, of course. Sometimes moral language is the reason, but oftentimes it's it's disguising a darker, a darker motive. Yeah. Um, so I think you're right, and I think sometimes, uh, and too bad, people use moral arguments insincerely. 
they use them as a fig leaf to conceal their true motives or their real reason for wanting something to happen. Nevertheless, whenever anyone makes an argument, a moral argument, even if they produce it insincerely, if it's a good argument, then we have reason to accept it. And if it's a bad argument, then we have reason to show, or, or, or rather, it would be good for us to show that the argument is no good. So even if somebody, so suppose Immanuel Kant produces critique of pure reason insincerely. Suppose it's true that Immanuel Kant wrote that whole book to conceal some secret dark motive or something like that. In a way, it doesn't matter because the arguments are either good or bad independently of why somebody presents those arguments. Uh, it matters in the following way. We know that the person that we're interacting with isn't going to care about the quality of the argument. So if you present an argument and you're motivated not by the moral argument, but rather some incentive or motive that lurks in the background, when I show you that your argument is no good, that's not actually going to persuade you. So you violate a kind of academic norm or a kind of norm of offering and responding to reasons and arguments. Yeah, you, you violate that, so that's, so that's bad. So we have to sort of treat the arguments independently of the motives, but it's good to know what the motives are because then you know whether or not it's worth your while to engage this specific person rather than talk to third parties about the argument that you're having with this specific person. Or you might yeah, or you might argue with them for the sake of the third parties. You might think the person right. I'm arguing with isn't sincere, they're, they're a lost cause. But there are people listening who maybe haven't made up their minds yet or don't know what to think. And maybe in arguing with this person who is a lost cause, you change minds or get someone to, to consider an argument they wouldn't have otherwise. But I wanted to uh, wrap up with two questions that I ask all my guests. Yeah. Um, the first one is, is whether or not you've failed spectacularly in either your personal or professional life. I'm curious, like, what you learned from the failure? How, does it, how did it improve your life? Oh, uh, uh, okay. Whatever you really <coughs> want to share would be, would be fine. So, of course, I've had spectacular failures in both my personal and my professional life. Yes. Um, um, but I'm trying to think of one. Well, I don't I'll just I'll just say it. I don't know if this one was particularly instructive, but the first time I ever taught MBA students, I would consider that a fairly spectacular failure. I still remember what it was like after the first, let's say, two classes, where I realized that everything that I had planned for that class was wrong, <clears throat> like it was a mistake. The way that I set up the syllabus, what I had the students read, it just wasn't relevant to them, and it just wasn't the kind of thing that they wanted to talk about. And so I had, like, silence in the room, and as you know, um, us philosophers want to have conversations in our classrooms. We want to have back and forths, the exchange of arguments, good and bad ones, and so on. So it was a disaster. I still remember losing all kinds of sleep over it. Um, okay, so what did I learn from this mistake? Well, initially I was tempted to just stop teaching MBAs altogether, that it sort of, it scared me. Um, 
in like teaching MBAs. I, I'm a good teacher. I get really good teaching evaluations. I've been a good teacher for a long time. I pride myself and sort of construct an identity around being good at this aspect of my job. And then I had this one glaring counterexample, which was I failed in teaching MBAs. So one thing that I learned is that instead of thinking about what I would want if I were an MBA student, I started to try to figure out what, where their head was at, right? So instead of, and I tried to meet them halfway rather than, um, I mean, in a way I was being selfish maybe because I taught the course as something awfully close to a graduate level course in philosophy. But why would I do that? The students, this was a mistake. The students didn't, they don't come here to get an MBA degree in order to do graduate level master's philosophy on business ethics. That's not what they want. That's not what they pay for. That's not, right, that's not what they wanted. I delivered what I would have wanted, but I'm a philosopher, so I'm interested in those things. They're not, I should have met them halfway. I learned fairly quickly one, to do some research on what these people want, what the expectations are from a class like this. Two, I changed things around the edges quite a bit, and now I've been teaching MBAs for, I think, five, maybe six years. And at this point, I'm in the middle of teaching MBAs right now, and at this point, it's a joy. Like, it's a real pleasure to be in that classroom, to deliver something that is a compromise between what I want to do, but what they enjoy uh, uh, getting. So I'm communicating the, the moral concepts that I think are really important um, and doing it in a way that I think they appreciate a lot more. So that's my failure and how I dealt with it. And finally, the last question. This is a legacy question. I'm curious what you want people to say about you and your work in 100 years. One way to put this would be, what do you want on your tombstone? Oh, wow. Okay, geez. <clears throat> huh. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's... You know, it's funny you ask that. Let me... Uh, I know you probably don't have a lot of time, but I... I um, let me tell you about um, why I switched from doing work on John Locke's property theory to work in blood plasma. I had a sort of moment of crisis, sort of a personal meaningfulness crisis. So my teaching is meaningful and I consider that like purposeful, important, meaningful, I'm helping, I'm helping other people, improving their lives, et cetera, okay? So that's, that's meaningful. But then I thought about my academic research and I used to write a lot about John Locke's theory of property and that was my cup of tea. And then I thought, well, who cares? I wrote a paper that, that said, well, here's John Locke's view on property and here's what it entails. I wrote another paper that I still think is really good and a lot of fun and I really enjoy it and so I don't want this to sound the way that I think it might sound, but I wrote another paper that said, hey, if you, if you take Locke's views on property and you combine them with his views on uh, personal identity, then it turns out that our property claims are limited uh, to the extent of us being the same person. You can check that out. It's in philosophical uh, studies. You can read that at home. Um, okay, so what? Right, was the question that I had.
I thought it was super interesting, et cetera, but so what? And I sort of wanted my academic research and my academic work to be more helpful and to have more of a kind of personal rather than merely an academic impact. And so I shifted gears initially. It was about um, whether, like, how do we increase the number of people who donate kidneys? Got into the question of whether or not certain kinds of incentives are appropriate in this space. Then discovered the blood plasma issue. Realized that actually there's only about, let's say, 100 people in the world who do work on blood plasma in the way that I do. And so I can have a significant impact and positive impact on the world. So I, I've, so I switched gears into blood plasma. What do I want on my tombstone? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, it would be really good if more countries allowed payment for plasma and if this increased the amount of plasma that is given and if this saved additional lives via the therapies that are made from plasma and if I had a hand in it, I would feel really good about myself. So maybe he's a bloody good guy. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, good. Yeah. He gave away a lot of apple fritters. Yes. Peter, thanks for uh, coming on the show. It's been really great. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Not a problem, man. Thanks for coming on the show.